Welcome back to the 2am book review club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, we're continuing our theme, our mini-series of books set in World War II Paris, which you can also think of as books having the title format the Paris blank. For example, last week we talked about The Paris Architect, and this week we're talking about The Paris Orphan. The Paris Orphan by Natasha Lester is what you would probably call a semi-recent release. It came out in 2019. At this point, I do need to give my usual spoiler alert, my usual spoiler warning. Spoilers ahead, major spoilers ahead for this book, The Paris Orphan. So please proceed with caution if you want to read this book. Where do I even begin with this book? I have so much to say about it, but I feel like I should at least try to organize my thoughts into something cohesive for the sake of the listening experience. But buckle in everyone, this is probably going to be a long one. Let's begin with the theme, the theme. I feel like I didn't say that right. Let me say that again. Let's begin with the theme, World War II Paris. Last week, we discussed how the political landscape of Paris during World War II is an incredibly fertile setting for developing characters, coming up with storylines, so on and so forth. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of possibility for complex, interesting storytelling within the Parisian landscape during World War II. And last week's book, The Paris Architect, did a really great job, in my opinion, of exploring a lot of those different possibilities. And as we discussed, I think that its title did a pretty great job of encapsulating the kind of story that the book was trying to tell. So with that in mind, let's look at the title of this week's book, The Paris Orphan. Without looking at the premise, right, just knowing that this is a World War II historical fiction book and looking at the cover... What would you think that a book called The Paris Orphan is about? And at this point, since this is audio only, no video, and you probably have no idea what the cover of this book looks like, I'm going to try to describe it for you. 
we'll see, we'll see how good I am at description. You know, it's one of those like fundamental storytelling skills that you're supposed to have in your author toolkit. Personally, I feel like description is definitely one of my weaknesses. And so let's see if, <laughs> let's see if I can figure it out right now off the cuff. All right. Okay. So this cover, well, my cover of my copy of The Paris Orphan looks like this. We have a woman and she's a blonde woman. She's got her hair in that 40s style. You know, it's kind of short, but it's curled, like it's got a big curl at the end. And she's wearing a red coat and we see her from the back. She's holding the hand of a little girl. The little girl is also, obviously, we see her from the back. She's got two braids. She's got a blue coat, khaki skirt. She's dressed basically like she's going to school. And in front of them, but in the background of the cover. Does that make sense? Because they're, they're facing away from us. So to them... What they're seeing is the background for us. I hope that makes sense. We have Paris, very obviously Paris. There's an Eiffel Tower, Eiffel Tower and everything. The Eiffel Tower dominates the landscape. But because we're centering the people, the Eiffel Tower is over on the left side of the cover. And then above, you know, the illustration, we have the Paris Orphan, the lettering, the title. It's bright pink lettering and it's like big, you know, <laughs> the, the letters are quite, quite tall. And the background of the letters is the sky. We have a pale blue sky. So the first thing you'll probably notice about... This cover, if you don't look at the pictures, the illustration, or even the title, just looking at it color-wise, we have a lot of bright colors. We have some pastels. So basically, that's kind of the vibe. It's got pastels and pink lettering and a woman holding the hand of a little girl. All right. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that was a helpful description. Now, looking at this, looking at this cover and this title, you would probably imagine, as I did, that this story is about a little girl who's an orphan and she's adopted or, you know, taken under, under the wing of this woman who lives in Paris, either because she's French and she just lives there, or someone who's not French but was in Paris for whatever reason and got caught up in the war. And then from there, you would probably imagine, as I did, that the story is about the two of them trying to navigate this politically fraught landscape and then maybe at the end of the story or maybe throughout the story they're trying to escape and the end of the story is that they do escape something like that right that is not what this book is about even remotely 
And that's part of why I feel like this title just doesn't really make sense. This book is titled like a World War II Paris book, but it really isn't. What this book is actually about is an American model named Jessica May. She's a very successful fashion model and she becomes a photojournalist for Vogue during World War II. So she goes to Europe, but not really to Paris. She goes to Italy. She spends a lot of time in London and she does eventually get to France and to Paris, but it's not until the war is basically over. Like for example, she doesn't get to Paris until it's been liberated. There's honestly a lot of time spent with Jess going to one place and then waiting to get somewhere else because a lot of the story is focused on the restrictions and the obstacles placed on her and other the other female journalists trying to cover the war because, you know, misogyny. Overall, this story is definitely not as Paris-centric as the title and even the description would have you believe. The very first words in the description are New York City slash Paris 1942. But again, she doesn't even get to Paris until it's been liberated, which I believe would be 1944. And then, of course, we have the orphan in the title, the Paris orphan, Victorine, I think is that how you say her name. That's probably not how an actual French person would pronounce it, but it's how I'm going to pronounce it. Apologies if I'm incorrect. But the, the pronunciation I looked up was Victorine. However, I admit I did just use like howtopronounce.com, so... Probably not correct, but that's what I'm going to go with. Anyway, Victorine is the niece of Jess's love interest, who is an American officer named Dan Haworth. And even though Victorine is an important character, in my opinion, she's not important enough or really enough of a character to put in the title of the book. She's really more of a plot device than anything else, if I'm being honest here. And Jess's connection with her is just pretty superficial. It's like, sweet young child immediately falls for nurturing female figure in her life who's romantically linked to her adoptive father. You you know the you know the trope, you know the stereotype. It's like that. And so it feels really dishonest to be like you're getting the story of this adorable little Paris orphan, but you're really not. You're getting the story of Jess and Dan and oh yeah, there's there's a little girl involved too. It's really just like if you read if you read small town romances or just romances in general, 
It's like that storyline. You know what I mean. If I had to guess, I would guess that the book is called The Paris Orphan because Victorine serves as a kind of link between the past and the present sections of the book. But as I'll get into later, I kind of have issues with the book's structure overall, and so really, I'm just not sold on The Paris Orphan being the title of this book. So, unlike with The Paris Architect, with The Paris Orphan, the story is focused almost entirely on the Allied side of the war. There's not really much discussion of the Axis powers. There is like one concentration camp that Jess goes to and she does go to Hitler's like headquarters essentially, like where he was living. But other than that, this story really is just focused on the Allies, on the Allied side of the war. And it's also not really focused on a single location, such as, you know, Paris, but more generally, it's focused on Western Europe and, in particular, England and France. But like with last week's book, this book talks a lot about the morality of war and a lot of the nuances, let's say, because we are focusing on the allies, but more specifically, we're focusing on how they conducted war, like their conduct during the war. And as it turns out, they did not conduct war very ethically. But honestly, I should be surprised about how surprised I felt because it's it's on me, you know, for never even questioning the conduct of the Allied soldiers. I basically just took what I was told in my history books at face value, essentially, and that's that's really all on me. However, I am getting a little ahead of myself, so... Let's back up a minute and talk about the premise of this book in a little more detail. And specifically, we're going to start with how this book, like a lot of historical fiction, is, say it with me everyone, based on a true story. There we go. So our protagonist, Jessica May, she is based on a real person named Lee Miller, who was also a model and then a photojournalist during the war. Lee Miller is also a character in the book, which which is a little a little strange. I didn't know that Jessica May was based on Lee Miller while I was reading the book, and then I got to the author's note at the end where she was like, oh yeah, by the way, you you know my character, Jessica May, well, she was based on, she was based on this other woman who is also a character in the book, so that was, that was a little weird. Well, as a reading experience, I'm not saying it's a weird thing to do, I'm just saying it was a little weird for me. However, um, Lee Miller is not 
obviously the only character like Jessica in the book. There are other other real-life female journalists who are featured in the book also. And I think that it's really admirable to write a book like this and to show us a side of the war that I think not many people know about. And this book really goes into detail about all of the obstacles that were put in these female journalists' paths because the U.S. armed forces were not happy at all about these women being present and trying to, you know, do journalist things. They really, really tried to block women from entering active war zones, even though they were there to report on the war. They blocked women from having access to the same resources that they were giving to male journalists. And they censored so many of the important stories that these women were trying to tell. Although, if I am being fair here, if a man had tried to report on the same stories, then I'm sure they would have censored those as well. I'm pretty sure the censoring was, (laughs) you know, fairly indiscriminate. And speaking of important stories... So many of the horrific things done by the allies in this book are apparently true stories, as the author explains at the end of the book, which makes me not only upset that these things happened, because, you know, of course it's upsetting to think of how much women caught up in this war had to suffer, but beyond that, It makes me incredibly upset that I was somehow never given an opportunity to know that these things happened. I feel like I have read a lot about World War II, whether that's, you know, fiction or nonfiction. And in particular, of course, I thought I had read a lot about the Allies, but somehow... All of the incredibly disturbing and disgusting incidents presented in this book just never came up. And that, I mean, in and of itself, it shouldn't be surprising that I never came across any of this because violence against women in general is not something that people want to talk about or in many cases have been allowed to talk about, particularly when it's committed by the so-called good guys during a war like World War II, where there was a lot, a lot of propaganda going on, so much in the way of propaganda efforts to push the Allies as the good guys. But I guess that I'm just more upset with myself for never questioning the narratives that I was presented with. The narratives that I always read were the allies are good, the Axis powers are bad. And, you know, of course the Nazis are bad, right? Who knew? But the allies, which included the Americans, they weren't necessarily good people either. 
Whether you're dealing with conquerors or so-called liberators, it's never ever good to be a woman trapped in a war. Period. Full stop. No exceptions. If you're a woman caught up in a war zone, bad things are likely to happen. There are no good guys in a war, right? There's only people who want to kill you versus people who want to systemically genocide you. And objectively, there is a worse side, right? It's the Nazis who commit genocide. Objectively, they are worse than the Allies. But neither side can be described as good because in their own ways, both sides brought so much suffering into the lives of civilians. Is it good that the Allies fought back against the Axis powers? Undeniably, undoubtedly, unquestionably, yes. Of course, the consequences if the Allies hadn't fought back, if Hitler had just been allowed to do what he wanted to do, that would have been unimaginably horrific. But that doesn't mean that we can't examine how the Allies acted. That doesn't mean that we can't hold them accountable for their own atrocities. Because the victims of, their, of those atrocities exist. And they deserve that, at the very least. You know, there's not much we can do for them anymore. But they deserve at least that. So in a lot of ways, this book is much more disturbing than the pastel, cutesy cover that I described to you and the sentimental title would suggest. There's a lot of misogyny in this book, both on a personal level and also on a systemic level. A lot of violence against women and also a lot of societal discrimination against women. For example, the inciting incident for this entire book is that Jessica's photo gets used without her permission for an ad for menstrual pads, sanitary pads, and that basically gets her blacklisted from the entire modeling industry, which is crazy to me, you know, from a modern day perspective. But that incident is apparently based on something that actually happened to Lee Miller, the inspiration for Jessica May. So I guess people really were just that unwilling to accept women as, you know, people. But throughout the book, there's a lot of frustration from Jess about the situations that she's put in and so much frustration for me as the reader as well because the worst part of misogyny or any type of societal oppression is that feeling of hopelessness, that feeling that you just can't do anything about it because this force is so much stronger 
than you as an individual can ever be. And this hopelessness really pervades the book. It's in how Jess feels when she's stuck in London because the army refuses to let her go to the front. It's in how Jess feels when she's not allowed to report on the way that allied forces are treating women. And it sucks. It really, really does. And it's important to read about. But at the same time, it's also so draining to read about and think about and process. So yeah, this is definitely a book that deals with a lot of important topics. It brings in a lot of women that I didn't even know existed. And I definitely feel like I learned a lot from reading this book. However, as always, just because I really liked that aspect of the book doesn't mean that I don't have criticisms about other aspects of the book. Because I definitely, definitely do. That's part of why I said at the beginning that I have so much to say about this book because there's all that good stuff that we just covered. And then there's all the other stuff that I don't even know where to begin with because as much as this book covers important topics and has a lot of important discussions, it's also a hot mess in a lot of ways. So let's get into it. So petty things out of the way first, right? This book was surprisingly hard for me to get into despite being a very interesting story and a story that I was excited to read. I thought at the time that it was just because maybe I was in a reading slump, maybe it was because I was reading the book at the end of the day right before bed when I was really tired. But I figured out since then that it wasn't any of that. The biggest reason I felt this way is because of the way in which this book is written. Which isn't to say that it's badly written because I don't think that at all. I think it's, I think it's well written, but the writing does have its issues. First, though, I, I do want to give the writing style a compliment <laughs> because I, I feel bad if I'm just, you know, dunking on it. One thing that this author does very well is this author is very adept at using settings, physical settings, to deepen characterization and contribute to the story in ways that I, for example, can't do at all. There are some really gorgeous moments in the writing where the character's perception of the nature and the physical space around them enrich our understanding of both those characters and the story. And I definitely, definitely think that that's well done and I have a lot to learn from that. However, at the same time, there are, there are issues with the writing and I feel like the biggest issue 
particularly towards the beginning, is that there is a lack of conflict in the writing that really, really affects the pacing and makes the book hard to get into. Conflict is what drives books, right? Like what drives stories. Without conflict, there would be no story because it wouldn't be very interesting. If, for example, you want to write a story about siblings, you're very, very, very rarely going to be writing about siblings that get along perfectly and agree with everything and they're just best friends, they've always been that way, they'll always be that way, so on and so forth. And do you know why you're not going to read a story like that? Because it's not very interesting to either read or write. Conflict is at the heart of what makes stories interesting. Conflict doesn't always have to be internal. For example, the siblings don't have to hate each other. What you can have, for example, is external forces that affect the siblings and their sibling dynamic. But the point is, whether it's internal or external, you have to have conflict of some kind. And in particular, you have to have conflict in the dialogue. If, for example, you have two siblings who normally get along great and they're always agreeing with each other and then some external force comes along and affects that dynamic, you don't show like 20 chapters of the siblings getting along great and just agreeing about everything and having a great time before you start to introduce the conflict. At most, you can have like a couple of lines of them getting along great to show what their dynamic is normally like before the external conflict comes along and disrupts that. And then from there, you really, really need to have conflict in their dialogue and interactions. In fact, um, as you know, a writer who is definitely still developing their skills, I've been doing a lot of, you could call it like studying, essentially. I've been doing a lot of reading about like writing and how to write well because, you know, I want to learn. And one of the writing books that I was reading recently, it's such a good book, by the way. If you're a writer or if you're like interested at all in writing, then I would really, really recommend this book. It's called The Portable MFA. Anyway, such a good book. I really, really enjoyed it. But one of the exercises that I was just looking at the other day was essentially <laughs> where you have two characters, right, in your exercise, and you have to make them disagree in every single line of dialogue. Like, you can never have them agree on anything. And of course, in practice, you know, characters are going to agree sometimes, but I feel like it's a really, really useful exercise because in general, you don't want characters who agree. There has to be some something that drives a wedge between them and causes conflict or else what you're reading is not very interesting. Now, all of that to say that... This book has a serious, serious lack of conflict. 
for example, consider this scene, which is 13 physical pages into the book. I do own a physical copy of this book, by the way. I picked it up from Books A Million. In case you didn't know, Books A Million has great prices on like, they, they have this section in the back and it's like bargain priced books, like just like shelves of them, at least in my Books A Million. And this isn't an ad or anything, I swear. But sometimes I'll just like go into Books A Million and I'll like, look at the the front shelves a bit, you know, like look at what's selling well right now. But then I'll just head straight to the very back because normally books are like $20 at least these days. Very few books are less than that. But if you go to the very back, right, you'll find books that are like $5. That was how much The Paris Orphan cost me. It was $5 $5.97, but essentially it's a very good deal, right? And I've even seen books that cost like $3, <laughs> um, which is which I think is really great. Like you can't really beat that. Even if you're ordering books online where they're definitely cheaper, you're still going to get like shipping and stuff. And so if you're looking for a good place to buy cheap books, I would really suggest going to your local books a million and just going to the very back or wherever they have like their bargain priced shelves and just like going through and see what you can find. It's mostly going to be, you know, books that are like, like the Paris Orphan, right? Um, three to four to five years old, old because they're not going to have, you know, brand new books back there. But if you're okay with like not buying like the very latest books, you can, you know, you can find books that are like relatively recent and very inexpensive. So I love Books A Million for doing that. I think it's great. I know they're just trying to like clear their stock <laughs> and like sell off books that nobody wanted to buy. But still, I, I think it's really, really great. And um, I always enjoy going to Books A Million. Anyway, not a Books A Million ad or anything, I swear. If this were like a Books A Million ad, I I would like do it like all the way through. I would have told you at the very beginning and like sprinkled all the way through because believe me, I'd be getting my money's worth. If Books A Million does want to do an ad deal or sponsor deal or whatever, hit me up. (laughs) I don't think anyone sponsors podcasts, but anyway, not the point. Okay, back to what I was going to do before I got into um little rave about like how much I love Books A Million. Okay, so 13 physical pages in the into the book, right? We're still in the first chapter and we're still getting to know Jess. We've had the inciting incident where her boyfriend has sold the photo of her to be used for the sanitary products ad. We've had her confronting him and they break up and the breakup is not really very dramatic, which I guess is more realistic, but... And what I'm saying is we're already kind of light on conflict. We've had some exposition and backstory, which is it necessary? Yes. Is it interesting? (laughs) As an author, it's one of my favorite things. As a reader, not so much. And we are gearing up to get to the interesting part of the story. You just know that the interesting part of the story is coming up. And then we get this conversation and the story just grinds to a halt. Jess is at the part at this party and she's run into Martha Gellhorn, I think. 
that's how you pronounce it. And she is a war correspondent and also Hemingway's then wife. So here is that conversation. I've read all of your pieces, Jess said. I can't say that I enjoyed them because nobody can enjoy stories of war and death, but I appreciated them. I've read yours too, Martha eyed Jess appraisingly, and seen your photographs. The ones you took of the artist's canvas sitting beside the propaganda posters she now paints was better than any newspaper report. I like the way you blurred one image into the other. Solarization, Jess explained. I wanted to make it look like one painting was literally bleeding into the other. Martha nodded. I thought that might have been it. It was the subtlest commentary. You didn't need words to explain the conundrum, the wish to appear selfless and donate one's talents to one's country at the same time as mourning the loss of true art. Thank you, Jess felt herself blush, which was something she hadn't done in a very long time. What are you working on now? Martha asked, sipping whiskey rather than champagne. That's a very good question. Besides asking my paramour to move out, Jess nodded at Emil. Not much. I heard about his hand, Martha said without sympathy. I also heard that if it hadn't been for his hand, I'd probably have asked him to move out a long time ago. Jess finished the sentence for her. So why don't you look happier? I believe you used to be something of a couple, like him and I. But wasn't that a while ago? Jessica May and Emile Robar, model and photographer, bohemian artists, Jess mused. You're selling yourself a little short by calling yourself a model. From what I've seen, you're as good a photographer as he is. You've had work published. Okay, so that was kind of a long excerpt, but hopefully this excerpt helps you see what I mean. There is no conflict whatsoever in that dialogue. It's either exposition or Martha complimenting Jess. I mean, like I said, you know, they don't need to argue or anything. And I get that the point is like female solidarity. And that's great. Okay, that's really great. But Martha does need to have some motivation beyond just being nice. Conflict doesn't necessarily mean argument. It can just mean that the two characters have motivations that are at odds with each other. But in this scene, Martha doesn't really appear to have any motivation, like, at all beyond just sipping her whiskey and enjoying the party, which again is great, but it's not very interesting to read about. We have had all of this tension building up in the story, right? Jess's old life is collapsing around her. And then all of that tension goes flat because the story has ground to a halt with this conversation that doesn't feel like it's doing anything. And there is so much of that in this book dialogue that feels really unnecessary because there's no conflict, it's not doing anything for the story, and the presence of all of that unnecessary dialogue makes it really hard to engage with the story. 
All right, so I recognize that that was a little petty, but I'm going to get into something more interesting, which is issues with the characters and the plot. Let's start with characters, and more specifically, let's start with the love interest, Dan Hallworth. <sighs> All right, so earlier I brought up romances, specifically small town romances. That was intentional. That was not that was not just me like trying to pull something analogous out. No, that was intentional, okay? Do you also remember how last week I criticized I criticized the character of Betty for essentially feeling like a wish fulfillment fantasy by the author? I have similar feelings about Dan, but for different reasons. Dan is basically a romance protagonist. He's handsome, he's brave, he's really, really nice, he's secretly very rich. His only flaw is that he's too honorable, too honest, too nice. Nah, you get, you get the picture. You get what I'm trying to say. Like with the Paris architect and that one scene of Betty meeting the Nazi officers who are trying to like come into her apartment. She meets them in her lingerie and I just laughed about the absurdity of that scene. Like with the Paris architect, having a character like Dan is so tonally jarring because you're reading this very dark book that deals with important themes like misogyny and gendered violence and the the unethical conduct of the allies and then suddenly you have this perfect love interest and it feels so out of place it does feel somewhat less out of place in this book mostly because Jess as a character, I mean, she's fine, but she doesn't really have any flaws as far as I can tell, which is part of why there's so little conflict in this book and part of why it was hard for me to get into. I don't really relate to characters that don't have flaws and I don't find them particularly interesting to read about. But beyond that, we also have Victorine and the whole adorable orphan thing going on as well. So overall, this story is a lot more sentimental than The Paris Architect. But regardless, Dan still doesn't quite fit into the story, particularly since this story deals so heavily with the themes of misogyny. Kind of like with the one good Nazi trope we talked about last week. There is a tendency for books, and not just books, other type of media as well, dealing with misogyny to have the one good man type of character. I also dislike this type of character, but for very different reasons than the reasons that I dislike the one good Nazi trope. Nazis are fundamentally bad, right? No ifs, ands, or buts period, full stop. They're bad people. There's there's no way to get around that. Men, on the other hand, are not necessarily bad people, right? They're just people in the same way that women are not necessarily good people because they're often victims. Men and women are just people. And similarly to how women are often portrayed as perfect victims, 
men are often portrayed as purely evil abusers. And then you'll have this one good man who tries to stand up against the rest of the evil men. And that one good man needs to be the best man to ever exist with no flaws and no drawbacks. And then on top of that, this man is often, like Dan, a really attractive love interest because he's conventionally attractive and rich and just basically the ideal man. Is it messed up that being conventionally attractive and rich is the ideal for a love interest? Yes, but we don't have time to get into that today. Also, I freely admit that I personally have kind of fallen into that trap before with my own books and I am trying to work on improving that because I do think it's very messed up and unfair. But at the same time, romance is, you know, escapist fantasy. But as I said, we don't have time to get into that discussion today. I'm just going to acknowledge that it's messed up. Anyway, I feel like this kind of man as the ultimate anti-misogynist is one, unrealistic because, okay, here's the thing, right? Dan, for example, is a young, hot, rich authority figure. How many of those kinds of people have you run into who are not misogynistic, right? Like, let's be honest here. In my experience, the answer is this kind of man tends to be the most misogynistic kind of man because he can get away with it. These kind of men don't really feel the need to be otherwise. But anyway, beyond being unrealistic, I think that this kind of trope, like in a sea of evil men, there is one good man. I think that that's not... (laughs) a fair or compelling representation of men in general. They're all bad except for this one hot guy that you really, really like. Oh, and also, he's like the perfect husband. Yes, thank you for your very insightful commentary on gender. Wow, never run into a character like that before. Like, come on, we can do better than this, right? Wouldn't a more compelling story be that you really, really want to see him this way because he's hot and rich and you're attracted to him, but then like the entire story is about you discovering, or not you, you know what I mean, the protagonist, discovering that it's it just doesn't work out that way sometimes, you know? Like you have to recognize that even people you're attracted to can be bad people and you often make excuses for these kinds of people because you really, really like them and want to be with them. (sighs) But anyway, that's not what we got. So moving on. Speaking of doing better, surely, surely in 2023 or even 2019 when this book was written in the in this in this century surely we can do better than characters like Amelia so the vast majority of female characters in this book are fine i guess is how i would put it they're supportive and capable and friendly you know so on and so forth they're not very interesting people But like I said, they're all friends, they all support each other, and I like that, okay? It's great. You love to see it. 
women supporting women. I'm going to put aside all of my complaints about lack of conflict and them not being very interesting and just say, hey, women supporting women is great. We need more of it. It's great to see that kind of representation in literature. However, however, this is kind of undermined by the existence of Amelia. Where do I even begin with the mess of a character who is Amelia? Amelia is Jess's old friend from school. They used to be wild teenagers who snuck out to parties and clubs and did stuff that they shouldn't have done. At the beginning of the story in 1942, she and Jess have long been separated because they've been out of school for a while. And she has married this old British guy for his money. When Jess reconnects with Amelia in like, I think it's like 42, 43, 44, somewhere around that time frame, between 1942 and 1944, the old British guy has died and Amelia is having the time of her life partying it up. Jess is weirdly judgmental about all of this and personally... I don't really get it. I mean, I'm like, go girl, game the patriarchy, get that money, live your life, you know? I think that these types of female characters who marry for money get unfairly judged in general because these women are not the problem here, right? And also, as long as everyone involved is a consenting adult and everyone knows what everyone else is here for, I mean, like, what's the issue? Like, the, for example, right, with Amelia, the old British guy she married is not a victim in any way. He voluntarily chose to marry Amelia and he probably knew why she was agreeing to marry him and he was okay with that and she was okay with that. So what is, what is the problem? Why is everyone so mean about this type of woman? Well, I know, but you know, Anyway, I mean, I just want to point out that Connor and Willa are arguably the most successful couple on succession, and I think it's for a reason. They're honest with each other, like think about the wedding episode where they have a sincere and honest conversation about their priorities. And to me, honest and open communication is the fundamental key to a successful relationship. Anyway, so when Amelia first came out, I kind of liked her, to be honest. I thought she was a fun character. But, of course, it turns out that she is, plot twist, not actually there to be Jess's friend. From the moment she lays eyes on Dan Hallworth, the ideal man, she turns into this evil, scheming villain who is out to steal Dan away from Jess. And not because she loves him, but because he's rich. And here is where we need to talk about the plot because, okay, a great deal of this book is important real life stuff, right? And then we also get like heartwarming, love and family stuff, blah, 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 whatever. But as much as we have all of that, Towards the end of the book, we descend into this soap opera madness of ridiculous plot contrivances and twists 
that I didn't really enjoy because that wasn't the kind of book I was here to read. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not that I can't enjoy that kind of book, but that wasn't what I was here for. I was here to read the heart-wrenching realities of people caught up in a war, and I was not here to read a story about an evil scheming woman who tricks Dan into marrying her and drives the star-crossed lovers apart. Because, yes, that is what this story is about. Basically, how the evil scheming woman convinced Dan, a full-grown man, to marry her because she is evil and scheming and poor Jess, poor Dan, blah, blah, blah. That, that's what this story is. The big secret about what happened at the end of the war, the reason that Dan and Jess didn't end up together as a happy family is because Amelia really, really wanted to marry Dan and Dan wasn't interested. And then one day, Amelia gets into a Jeep accident and Dan agrees to marry her. And that's it for Dan and Jess. Now, you may be wondering why this caused Dan to agree to marry her. You may be wondering why exactly Amelia getting into an accident means that Dan needs to marry her. And holy plot contrivance, Batman! So many nebulous reasons that are all supposed to add up to Dan has to marry her or it's the end of the world. He's got no choice. But honestly, it's all just so contrived and ridiculous that I can't take it seriously. Amelia only got into the accident in the first place because she was trying to like be closer to where Dan was. Dan was like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like he was, he was somewhere else and Amelia's also at the front. Oh yeah, I didn't explain that. Amelia's also at the front because she's like a nurse, but she's not like a good nurse. <laughs> she's only, she only becomes a nurse towards like the very end of the war when there's basically nothing left to do in terms of like fighting and stuff and she won't actually have to do the icky stuff so you know all part of her evil materialistic scheming nature <laughs> anyway so yeah so dan has like gone to this whatever part of france that's you know where he has to like do stuff and amelia basically like chases after him essentially in the jeep and she gets into the accident so you know it must be dan's fault that she decided to chase after him and ended up having an accident and amelia's accident causes scarring to her face she's a lot like <laughs> speaking of batman she's a lot like um what's his name you know the guy Two-Face? Is that what he's called? You know, like half his face is like disfigured. It's like that. Anyway, so she's got scarring on her face and she's really, really, really convinced that nobody will marry her unless Dan does. By the way, quick question here. Didn't Amelia already inherit a lot of money from her dead husband? Like, why does she need to marry someone, right? Maybe it's explained and I just forgot because whatever. <laughs> there was a lot going on, but yeah. Anyway, the biggest reason that Dan feels like he has to do this, you want to know what that is? 
It turns out that Amelia's dad is an important person in the army. He's like a general or something. And Dan is going to get court-martialed unless he agrees to marry Amelia. Oh, and did I mention that he would have still insisted on marrying Jess anyway if she hadn't broken it off because she got pregnant, but she wasn't sure that it was his baby. Because she also, around the same time, got sexually assaulted. There we go. It's giving Gossip Girl. It's giving Riverdale. It's giving teenage soap opera vibes. And sorry for laughing. I know that I just said something kind of serious there about like what happened to Jess, but... I just want to say that for a story that has such important messages of systemic misogyny and wartime violence and other serious heavy issues, how how am I supposed to take this plot seriously? How am I supposed to take any of this seriously? Like, please tell me if you know, how am I supposed to take this seriously? And it's like... As an author, you really, really couldn't think of any other way that Dan and Jess wouldn't end up together. You really, really, really couldn't think of any other way except to introduce an evil, scheming, conniving, materialistic woman who will do anything to marry this one guy who is the best guy, the ideal guy, and every woman wants him. Because I can. Like, I can very easily think of a million reasons why Dan and Jess wouldn't have ended up together. The foremost being, they were both involved in a war. Like, they clearly have trauma and probably PTSD. And there's no guarantee that, you know, either of them would have wanted to marry while they're processing all of that trauma. There you go. Easy solution. And it makes sense since Lee Miller, the character that Amelia is not Amelia, Jess, is based on, did suffer from PTSD after the war. So, you know, you could just have that except make it so severe that Jess just doesn't want to marry Dan anymore. Like, I can I can see that, you know? Like, trauma really, really affects people. But no, we had to have the evil woman, even in a book that's pretty, you know, like pro, pro-women, pro-feminism, can't escape the evil women, I guess. But you want to know what the real issue is beyond the <laughs> unnecessarily ridiculous trauma going on here? <sighs> okay, the real issue is that the fallout from this situation makes me lose any sympathy or respect that I had for these characters because I just don't understand why the fallout is the way it is. Beyond the author's desire to structure the story in a particular way. And so instead of constructing a story and deciding that, you know, this should be its structure, it feels like the author contorted the story to fit the predetermined structure that she always intended for this story to have. Let me explain what I mean. When I first picked up this book, as one does, I read the blurb. 
And here, here is the blurb. I'm going to read it to you so you know what I'm talking about. New York City slash Paris, 1942, which is a lie, by the way. I want to emphasize she doesn't get to Paris in 1942. She doesn't get there until like 1944. Anyway, sorry. When American model Jessica May arrives in Europe to cover the war as a photojournalist for Vogue. Most of the soldiers are determined to make her life as difficult as possible, but three friendships change that. Journalist Martha Gellhorn encourages Jess to bend the rules. Captain Dan Hallworth keeps her safe in dangerous places so she can capture the stories that truly matter. And most of all, the love of a little orphan named Victorine gives Jess the strength to do the impossible. But her success will come at a price. France, 2005. Sixty years after World War II, Darcy Hallworth arrives at a beautiful chateau to curate a collection of famous wartime photos by a reclusive artist. It's the opportunity of a lifetime, but Darcy has no idea that this job will uncover decades of secrets that will change everything she thought she knew about her mother, Victorine, and alter Darcy's life forever. When I first read this blurb, I was immediately struck by how unnecessary the present-day storyline seemed. But I naively assumed that there was some clever way that the plots tied together, some clever reason that Victorine would never have told her daughter about any of this. And when I was like reading along, we get to the soap opera stuff, and I was like, oh, you know, I guess it makes sense, you know, like Dan and Jess never saw each other again, so Victorine and Jess were estranged, and I guess something happened, but. Between Dan and Victorine, and that's why she knows nothing. <sighs> no, I can never have guessed <laughs> the ridiculous contrivances by which these two storylines are tied together. I would have never guessed just how much the addition of the present-day storyline undermines the past storyline. I just never, never would have guessed. Okay, so in the present day storyline, we have Darcy, and as the blurb says, she's hired by a reclusive photographer who is Jess. Obviously, I guess that from the blurb. They try to draw it out and make it like a mystery, but I'm like, literally, who else could it be? You know, it's obviously Jess. I knew that from the start. Anyway, and Jess hires her to go through her wartime photographs. Darcy has no idea who she is. She's like a recluse. Nobody knows who she is, etc., etc. Okay, but once Darcy does figure out that it's Jess, she's still really confused because it turns out she has no idea about her mother's connection to Jess, which is fine. Okay, I get that. But beyond that, she has no idea. That Dan is Victorine's adoptive father. She has no idea that Dan Haworth exists. He's like the head of like this news organization, so she knows that he exists in that capacity, and that he's like her, her mom's boss, essentially, like way up the chain. But he's like her mom's boss. But she has no idea that Dan is Victorine's father. What? Right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would she not know this? And so I thought, okay, there must be some big storyline 
that explains why all of this happened and why Darcy has no idea about like anything. And like I said, you know, Dan married Amelia. So I guess it makes sense that Dan and Jess, you know, don't know each other. And so um, Darcy, Darcy wouldn't know Jess. But there has to be a reason that Dan and Victorine aren't close. Like they're estranged to the point where Darcy has never met Dan. There must be a reason for that, right? Right? Yeah. No. It turns out there's not a reason. Victorine. When Darcy was born, Darcy is not, it turns out, Victorine's biological child, but Victorine brings Darcy home and she just decides that Dan is not going to have a relationship with the, with Darcy, his adoptive granddaughter. And the reason that she decides this unilaterally, right, is because Darcy is biologically Jess's granddaughter? Yeah, that's the whole reason. I guess Victorine thought that Dan would figure it out, which makes no sense. Like, even if, even if he was like, oh, she looks kind of like Jess, he would chalk it up to a coincidence because why would he think that this is Jess's granddaughter? <sighs> and also, beyond that, she and Dan are not estranged, like she, like Dan and Victorine. Dan and Victorine are not estranged. She goes to visit him every year. She just doesn't take Darcy. So I guess Dan is cool with not ever meeting his own granddaughter, except at the end of the book, he's suddenly very interested in getting to know her. What? And beyond that, you want to know what's really bonkers? Victorine and Jess still, like, talk. Like, they still talk to each other. Like, they know each other. But Darcy has never met Jess. Okay, please, please explain to me how this makes sense. Okay, I kind of get, like... Victorine being like, well, it's not my secret to tell that Jess had a child who then had a child. Okay, fine. It makes no sense, but fine. Okay, I guess I can accept that logic. Jess not wanting to know her own granddaughter does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. Whatever. Anyway, so yeah, Jess was not interested in knowing her granddaughter, but then, you know, there has to be like an inciting incident for the present day storyline so suddenly she is interested in getting to know her granddaughter so there we go now you may start to see what i mean about the story being contorted to fit the structure rather than the story naturally taking on this structure because in order to get the story to fit the structure it just becomes nonsensical. It makes no sense anymore. I was very sympathetic to the characters right up until they started doing things that made no sense because the plot needed to be a certain way. Not to mention, the victim in all of this is Darcy because she grows up thinking her only family in the world is her mother. And she only gets to finally connect with Dan and Jess in their very old age, you know? Like, that's that's all she gets. I just feel so bad for her because there was no reason 
for any of this to have been the way it was. <sighs> Whatever. <sighs> All right. Anyway, even though the story has a lot of important messages and talks about a lot of women who should be remembered, and even though I liked the premise of the book, I just feel like the story really unravels in the last quarter or so, and that's to the detriment of both the plot and also the characters. And to me, I just think that the book's issues largely boil down to the author feeling the need to include the present day storyline. By the way, the present day storyline is so boring too. It's mostly just like a romance between Darcy and this random guy who works for Jess. And I mean, that's fine that there's a romance, but I'm not here for contemporary romance. If I wanted contemporary romance, I could go find that. I'm here for compelling and realistic historical fiction. And at the end of the day, I just feel like that's not really what I got. So there we go. That's The Paris Orphan. Overall, I would not rate this a staying up until 2am book, mostly because it was so hard for me to get into. Once I got into it, I did want to find out what happened, but honestly, if I didn't own a physical copy of the book and therefore feel obliged to read it, and also if I hadn't been intending to make this miniseries, I might not have finished it. And that would have been a first. I finish almost every book I start, with the occasional exception of like a romance that I'm really not feeling. But beyond that, I finish everything I read. So there we go. Not a staying up until 2am book. As we've seen, this was a very different reading experience from The Paris Architect. And next week, we'll be wrapping up this mini-series with a book I'm very excited to talk about, The Postmistress of Paris, and we'll see what approach that book takes to the topic, how it's similar to the books that we've discussed so far, and how it's different. And then we'll be wrapping up the mini-series, like I said, and seeing what we learned from reading these World War II Paris books. By the way, I would really highly encourage you to read The Postmistress of Paris before next week's episode because as I'll be discussing then, I loved this book so much and I'm so excited to talk about it and I think it'll make it even better if you read it first. So, alright, that's everything for this week. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week and happy book travels! Uh.